happy Bring the company. No, I'm not going to talk about that tonight. You've got your notes. You know the topic for tonight is from marital chaos to wedded bliss. Uh, for those of you at home, uh, it's basically basic outline is just that. The right kind of marriage and the wrong kind of marriage. Uh, last week we spoke about two brides. This is broadly in the same ballpark, it just has a more specific focus. Uh, when divorce and remarriage is a good thing, there is one occasion when divorce and remarriage is a very good thing, and we'll find out more about that this evening. We've seen in the me uh, message on two brides how allegories related to our spiritual problems, failures, commitments, and truthfulness are associated with marriage relationships. Now, I have explained at the outset, this is a nice little series, and I explained at the outset that an allegory is a word picture, the, uh, and the point of it is to deliver a truth. And the Bible is full of them. Uh, it's almost like a picture book from Genesis to Revelation. God goes to a lot of trouble to, to create pictures that describe spiritual truths, make it plain to us so that we can understand what he's trying to teach us. And it's extraordinary to me that the allegories are based usually on real people in a real historical setting, but the application to spiritual truth is so profound, and we're going to see that again this evening. Um, marriages as God designed them are complex relationships between two very different people as about as different as you can get a man and a woman uh, they, they are just different creatures it's extraordinary how uh, they get together in marriage and actually manage to live together and create happy families because they are so different um, the marriage story begins with Adam and Eve who were wedded to each other and to God, their creator. But the first couple chose to disobey him, and their sin led to divorce from God, separation from God. And that's what sin does always to you and I. Uh, when we sin, we are separated from God. When we don't confess our sins, there's that break between us. That doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. It just means our fellowship with God is strained. And the blessings that should be on us as we walk through this present evil world are lifted from us if we continue in our sins. And the marital chaos that followed that first fatal sin in the Garden of Eden is with us to this day. Strife, betrayal, and heartbreak. Multiple divorces and remarriages are commonplace. And there's no shame in rampant infidelity. People these days kind of boast about it. There's absolutely no shame, no social stigma attached to just living a very loose life. It's a testimony to the world's marriage to sin and separation from God. Sin in the Bible very clearly is spiritual adultery. We're going to read a scripture in a moment where it calls it just that. Spiritual adultery. And the way to cease this adultery is to divorce from the source of adultery. 
And the source of adultery, spiritual adultery to us, is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as we divorce ourselves from that, we live victorious Christian lives. Let's go to Ezra and open our scripture uh, there, uh, the scripture story, as we explore it this evening. Um, and as we do that, as we turn to Ezra, let's just open in a word of prayer. Father, I ask you as always that you bless this word, open our hearts to your truth. Uh, Lord, it's, it's just an amazing thing. What a privilege we have to have this word at our disposal. How deep it is and rich it is. How true it is in every possible way. We ask that you bless it with your presence this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the story in Ezra is actually in chapters 9 and 10. We're just going to read two representative verses. But the background is the nation of Israel had split into two through sin. The ten northern tribes went their own way and eventually they became so sinful that God totally destroyed them. The Assyrians came in, wiped out the nation, took those, the few survivors captive and they were scattered to the four corners of the earth, never to reunite as a kingdom again. Well, two of the tribes were left over, Judah and Benjamin, came to be known as Judah, the, the land of Judah. And you'd think they had learned their lesson from watching what had happened to Israel, but they didn't. And they started to repeat the same sins until eventually they went into captivity for 70 years to Babylon. But God brought them back to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And no sooner did they get back into the land that the men went and found wives in all the surrounding tribes who were idolaters, uh, uh, grossly sinful, practiced all sorts of, uh, you can't even name the things that they did, were so gross, so awful. And they happily took those women as their wives. You can imagine God's frustration, watching his people do that, wondering to himself, no doubt, what did it take for them to actually obey me? Anyway, the consequence of that was Ezra goes to them and says, you've got to divorce those women. And look at these two verses here in, in uh, chapter 10, verse 10. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Separate yourself from the sin in order to establish a walk with God. There's another powerful allegory <coughs> illustrating the foolish and destructive nature of sin when we marry to it. And that's found in 1 Samuel 25, a wonderful story. I remember, as I've explained before, that not every detail in an allegory is, uh, contains spiritual truth that we should follow. There's a story, the, the overarching story, the general trend of the story is where we draw spiritual truth. Uh, there's a lot of detail in this story, um, and it concerns a woman called Abigail and David. The story is about a man. His name is Nabal. Nabal, I guess you would say if you're American. Uh, Nabal. And his name, 
becomes allegories because uh, they are, if you dig deep enough, you find all kinds of interesting little details. Wouldn't you know it, his name means fool. He's a foolish, sinful man. And uh, in, the in the text, he's also described as churlish, which is a lovely old English word. It simply means rude and impolite. So here we have this foolish man who is rude and impolite, and he's married to a very beautiful woman named Abigail. And her name means the joy of her father. And in the context of the story, not only is she the joy of her heavenly father, she's also, uh, rather, her earthly father, she's also the joy of her heavenly father. Um, and Nabal antagonizes, goes out of his way to antagonize David. The story is basically that David, who at this time is a nomad, he's gathered a little army around him, Saul is still king, and David protects this man's flocks, and uh, the thanks for it is just to get a rude brushel from Nabal. So David gets very upset, and he says, I'm going to go and wipe out that entire family, take all their sheep, uh, kill the servants, kill the family, I'll teach him a lesson. And Abigail uh, takes the initiative and goes out and offers gifts to David to try and protect him, to draw the sting of that, uh, his anger. And her swift action saves her husband's life. Well, he's so happy about it, he throws a party, gets drunk and dies of a heart attack. A fitting end for a fool. Uh, but that leaves Abigail free to marry David. And the story is wonderfully summarized in a single sentence spoken by Abigail to David. And that's in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 29. Speaking of her husband, she says, A man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul. Note, not thy life, uh, not to take revenge on your life, not to uh, beat you up, but he seeks your soul. That's what, the, what sin always has as its target, your soul and mine. He seeks your soul. But the soul of my Lord, meaning David, shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God, and the souls of thine enemies, him, them, shall he fling out. And that's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. I quote it often. The soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. Is yours tonight? What a wonderful thought, that my soul is bound in a bundle of life with God's life. To me, that's just an amazing thought, that we're bound up with him. If you're walking with God, if you have no unconfessed sin in your life, you can say the same thing. My soul is bound up with a bundle of life in the Lord my God. Hallelujah. And so what we learn from this that separation from foolish worldliness and faithful marriage to God is a defining characteristic of sincere Christians. That's what should define us. We're separate from the world. We're married to God and we live accordingly. We're going to look then at, the at three points about uh, separation. We begin with the principles of separation. And this is in three sub-points. Firstly, God's commands it. He commands separation. And the scripture we're going to look at is 2 Corinthians 6 verses 14 to 17. 
B, we not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Sarah said, it's right there. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord, or what agreement is there, hath Christ with Belial? Belial is the name of the devil. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, an unbeliever? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, because of this incredible fact that the, the God, the creator of the universe, the great God, says, you are my people, you, and I want to walk in your midst. I want to dwell in you. And because of that, come out from among them, come out from the world, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. If you do that, God says, I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What an amazing passage. We can stop right there, go home and praise God all night long. God commands separation. And love demands separation. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know, Scripture doesn't pull any punches, just tells it like it is. If we love the world, God's love is not in you. And lastly, citizenship requires it separation from the world. Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who have delivered us from the power of darkness and have translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. He, he took us out of the power of the devil the evil prince of this world whose rule is always darkness. God came and took us out of that darkness, and I love that word, he translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, into the kingdom of light, where all is light and joy and peace and purity. God did that to us. Wretched sinners rescued us out of the darkness. And because of that, because we are citizens no longer of this present evil world, but of the heavenly kingdom, with Jesus Christ as our King. Because of that, our citizenship requires separation from the world. Well, those are the principles. Let's look then at the purpose of separation. Why does God want to separate us? Well, the obvious answer is He wants us to be holy, but it goes deeper than that. We are separated to be sanctified. We leave Egypt, then sanctification follows. Now, the whole story of the Israelites in Egypt is another wonderful allegory. Pharaoh is a picture of Satan, the god of this world. Egypt is a picture of this present evil world. And God's people are slaves there, just like God's people are in this world. We are slaves to the god of this world if we don't walk with our Heavenly Father, if we don't separate ourselves. And uh, how did they get out of Egypt? 
Well, the Passover lamb liberated them. The blood of the lamb set them free from the death angel. And then they took the next step. They went through the waters of baptism, the Red Sea parted, and they left Egypt behind them, never to return to the world, heading for the promised land. And so let's read that passage in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 11. It tells the whole story, a wonderful story of separation from the world. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. Now the first month, of course, was the month of Passover. That's when their history began. They were liberated from Egypt. They were liberated from the death angel. And they came out of Egypt. Uh, and they came into the wilderness. And before they were departed from the from Rephidim and would come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thou shalt, thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. You see that? God liberated them Freed them from Egypt. Why? I want you to bring you to myself. I want you for me. What an amazing story. What a God we have. What a privilege we have. What an unbelievable life we have. God the creator says, I want you for me. I want to bring you to myself. How foolish we are then when we cling to the things of this present evil world say but I like that and I like that when God himself says I want you for myself come to me let me love you let me protect you let me bless you and then we stand in a corner and think well I wonder is that a good deal or not it's the way we approach God very often I brought you to myself he says verse 5 now therefore if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant then ye shall be a peculiar treasure, a special treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And those words apply just as much to us today. And Moses came and called all the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They very quickly showed that that wasn't true, but right then they said it, and they believed it when they said it. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them, set them apart, separate them from the things that would hold them back. Today and tomorrow, let them wash their clothes. That in itself is a picture of washing yourself of sin. And be ready against the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight before all the people upon Mount Sinai. James chapter 4 and verse 4 puts it in one sentence, brutally, briefly, powerfully, if you don't get it when you read this sentence, you'll never get it. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, 
Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I don't know about you, but the thought of being God's enemy scares me. Now there was a time in my life where I was dumb enough and rebellious enough as a Christian where it didn't scare me. Until God got a hold of me and made me serious. Uh, but look at what he says there. You adulterers and adulteresses. That should disgust us. The thought of being an adulterer, an adulteress. And how does that happen? When we're friends with the world and the things of this world and we prefer them to the things of God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Note that sanctification, however, is not an end in itself. There's something deeper than that. We stay on earth after salvation because God has a purpose for us. And it's not just that we live holy lives. That is a means to an end. It requires his power to fulfill his purpose. And unless we live holy lives, we don't experience his power. When Jesus called his disciples, he didn't say, follow me and I will make you holy. He did say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What an fantastic call to be a fisher of men, to be able to go out and share Jesus with one other person. <coughs> I wish you could have been with us last night. I won't mention the young lady's name, lovely young lady, knocked on the door. I think she might have been a bit overwhelmed with me and Debbie and Karen, all at this lady's door. And uh, just were able to share the gospel with her and promised to come back next week and see what she's done with it. But the, the privilege of doing that, of being able to take this book and share it with a living soul and potentially change their eternal destiny. Do you realize that you and I have that power, have that calling? To change the eternal destiny of another living soul who might be bound in hell forever except that we can knock on their door and point them in a different direction just as each one of us was saved each one of us here tonight is here because somebody a voice didn't come out of the sky somebody at some stage in our lives told us about Jesus Christ in my case, it was a Jewish man, convert to Christianity. Uh, I was a rebellious, sinful man. He came and knocked on my door one day, and he would not take no for an answer. And so I physically threw him out of my house and slammed the door behind him. And what he told me, with a light in his eyes, with joy in his face, what he told me about Jesus had such a deep effect on me, that it led me to salvation a week later. Because I couldn't shake the thought that this man had something that I couldn't explain. And I better find out what it was. And I did. <laughs> His name was Peter Eliasson. He died recently. Wonderful man. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to be soul winners, 
He provided his power for them to do so. Now that power is available if you'll just separate yourself from the world. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. What a statement. I've got all the power in the universe, Jesus says. So go. And what does he add? And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 28, 18-19. That's why we sanctify. That's why we separate ourselves. So that he will give us his power to tell other people about salvation. Let's look a bit more at the power of separation. We've looked at the principles, the purpose. Let's look at the power. Again, we talked about the lever principle. Uh, Pastor, when you uh, heard that, that was the principle. Um, he said, I think you can. Well, that works. That lever, lever. We talked about separation before. I even thought of it, so I was crediting it. But uh, the ancient Greek mathematician Archimedes famously said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it and I can move the world. And he was right. Christians had been given a mighty fulcrum. The fulcrum is the thing that the lever was built on. And we have a mighty fulcrum, this word. You and this word and your voice can move the world. But there's one condition. All we need in addition to this book is to stand so far away from this present evil world that we can move it. That's the lever principle. Archimedes was right. You get a far away from the world, not out of the world, because if you get out of the world, you're not no good to anybody. Be in the world, but not of the world. Stand far away from it, get God's power, and then speak the gospel to everybody you see. Share his truth with them. When we separate ourselves from the world and sanctify ourselves to God, we can expect to experience God's power to do God's work. I'll tell you what you will experience, even if nobody gets saved, is joy. You go out and knock on doors for an hour, or go and hand out tracts, or do something to share your faith, and your heart fills with joy, His joy, because you're doing what He died for, what He longs for all of us to do, to share our faith. Joshua said unto the people, Joshua 3 verse 5, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. You separate yourself from the world, and God will do wonders in your hearts. In the Old Testament, His power was necessary to win wars and subdue kingdoms. In the New Testament, it's necessary to liberate sinners from the kingdom of darkness. Let's go to Luke chapter 4 and see what our Savior did with that power. Luke chapter 4. See if I've got it here. There it is. I love this Bible with its two tassels. Uh, let's start in verse 14. I think they've got it there from 16. Let's introduce it. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit uh, into Galilee. He'd been tempted by the devil 40 days and 40 nights. He comes back from that encounter in the power of the Spirit and they went out famed through of him through all the region around about. He taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. And then we pick it up there. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as 
as his custom was, he went into the synagogue. Now, can't you relate? As our custom is, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we come to church. Jesus was no different. His custom was to be in the synagogue on the day when they went to gather there to praise God, to worship God, and to teach on his word. And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And it was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found in the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to do what? Just to feel good. No, he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. The poor, Jerry, is the spiritually poor, the brokenhearted, spiritually brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, those who are held captive, spiritually captive by the devil, and recovering of sight to the blind, those who are spiritually blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised, those things beaten up by this present evil world. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Hallelujah. Separate yourself. Look to God. And He will save you. This glory. This delight. This excitement is because of sharing your faith. To do what He wants you to do. So, where does that leave us? What, what are we left to do after all that? Well, when two people marry, they make solemn vows of commitment, forsaking all others. That's a beautiful phrase. Thus, because of this, adultery is seen as one of the worst sins, betraying both the vows and the relationship based on those vows. And it's my belief that it would revolutionize the life of every single Christian if we saw our relationship with God in the same way and turned our backs on the world to Satan the devil to cleave to one husband who is Christ our Savior. To cleave to him, to cling to him. Think of that the next time you are tempted by some little sin or tempted to compromise your principles or tempted to adopt some worldly fad point of view. Some one of those shallow little trinkets that the devil loves to hold in front of us. It's always biting his tongue and we just want to reach out like a little baby for the light. Grab a hold of it. Think next time that trinket flashes in front of you. What it is God wants you to do. Don't betray him. Don't be an adulterer. But I've got an even better idea than that. You want to please God? And change the world around you, fall so deeply in love with Jesus that you don't even notice the temptation because you have eyes looking forward. Let him be your companion, your lover, your friend, your delight, and the things of the world will go strangely heavy in a life that is beauty and grace. Let's pray. Father, may 